This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand On the Air. Otago Access Radio, in partnership with Otago Polytech, brings you Blowing Bubbles. Blowing Bubbles brings you positive conversations of people in their bubbles around the world. How are people living their bubble lives? Working from home, keeping kids entertained, and staying connected and getting exercise. And how are these things presenting us with the opportunities to find new ways of living? Every weekday, the Sustainable Lens team of Samuel Mann, Shan Gallagher and Mara Karatai reach out from their bubbles to chat with interesting and positive people around the world. Broadcast on Otago Access Radio 105.4 FM and streamed and podcast on oar.org.nz and sustainablelens.org. Bringing connection, joy, kindness and peace in the days ahead. Welcome to Blowing Bubbles, positive conversations with people in their bubbles, their safe spaces around the world. I'm Samuel Mann in Soyuz Bay, Dunedin, and I'm joined from Fakatani by Mawera Karatai. Kia ora, Mawera. Kia ora, Sam. How's it going? It's going very well, but more importantly, how is the writing going? Um, it's going really well because this is the second to last day. Tomorrow is the last day, and um, I think I probably will just write till the end of tomorrow from now and everything should be fine. We are all looking forward to that. And who are we introducing today? It is my great pleasure to introduce Jessie Bythel today, coming from Wairio in in the South Island, bottom of the South, a place I have never actually been to, um, where Jessie um, helps others to care for our natural environment. So I reckon that's about the greatest job there is, Jessie. Thanks for joining us today. Kia you're welcome. Welcome, Jessie. You have to tell us where this town is. Um, it's approximately halfway between Invercargill and Tiano. So if you know those two towns, it's roughly midway. So in, this, in the west of Southland, um, about an hour northwest of Invercargill. And what happens there? Uh, all sorts of things. I mean, it's a farming district, so most people in my neighbourhood are farmers. Um, but the reason the town exists was it was set up to help push the railroad further out to Ohai to get the coal out about 100 years ago. And were you there for lockdown? How was how was Bubbles there? Uh, yes, I was here for lockdown. I've lived here for the last um, 16 years or so. And um, I'm, I'm almost a little shamefaced to admit that lo- um, lockdown was great and my bubble was great. And um, yeah. <laughs> had a really interesting time it was hard to be it would have been hard to associate with too many people if there aren't too many people there in the first place that is true we were not avoiding large crowds down here i think our population is was at the time 22 i think um it's maybe grown a little bit maybe to 25 now in our town um but yeah so despite that um we did actually end up breaching our bubble and uh joining up with our neighbor at um, one time during lockdown just to help him out so yeah that did happen and were you working during the lockdown I was um I had to switch tracks a bit as most people did but uh, I was really lucky that I had um aspects of my job that I could still do easily from home um at being self-employed and working from home for the last 16 years did give me a few hacks and tips for for lockdown um but also yeah the um the organization i was working for was giving us lots of alternative work and so that was great we had all sorts of extra interesting projects to turn our minds to so mawera said that you're helping other people with looking after the the environment how are you doing that 
Um, so one of my jobs, or one of my key jobs these days, is I work for the QE2 National Trust, um, and that is basically an organisation that helps landowners who wish to protect special features on their land, primarily biodiversity, but also other things, to um, you know legally protect them and to look after them. So my role is to help them with that and help ensure that the um, protection is robust going forward as the landowners change. So um, yeah. I'm sort of like a, um, a little bit like a cop or a guardian angel or both. It's a strange kind of role, but I really love it. Yeah. Do the farmers approach you wanting to to protect some land, or, or do you proactively go and say, "I want to help you look after this bush"? Um, I actually just wait for them to call me, and I don't really have to wait too long. I have um, my phone's ringing off the hook these days, as are all my colleagues who do the same job around the country. Um, but yeah, no, it's pretty much always been that way. The QE2 National Trust was set up by farmers back in the 70s, 76, I think it was. And um, we, we really work with people who voluntarily want to protect things. So they come to us, and that's where the start conversation starts. So they... They say I'm trying to. I'm, I'm wanting to look after this particular piece of land. Where do or you less, go yeah. with the conversation? Um, it really depends on what the thing is that they're trying to achieve. So um, some sites might have. Um, they might be sort of original ecosystems that are largely intact, and they just need stock exclusion or a little bit of weed and pest control. Um, or sometimes they might be systems that have been highly modified, and they want to restore or, or help reinstate some of their original. Um, ecological processes so depending on what the goals are that's sort of how we how we start um, and really it's driven by the landowner with what what is in their heart what they want to achieve but um, I'm sort of there alongside them giving them advice and helping get some sort of um, ecological and sort of logistical um, practical stuff in the mix as well. And you said that you're it's about trying to protect that land even if the landowner changes it's a mm -hmm. covenant system isn't it? A what, sorry? Is it a covenant oh, a system? Yes, correct. That's right. So, so covenant's just an old-fashioned word for agreement or um, sacred contract between people. And so, yeah, that's right. We um, sometimes informally use the word covenant to refer to the area that's protected, but really it actually refers to the agreement between the landowner and the QE2 National Trust to manage and protect that area um, for an agreed set of values. And so, um, yes, that, that um, stays on the title and it runs with the title in perpetuity. Uh, and so my role is to sort of help whoever is the future owners over time, the landowners do change, um, to understand and value that site. And I guess in a, no sort of, in a small part, keep my BDI on them and make sure that they're doing a good job. They must see <laughs> the value. They, at least the original owners must see the value in that conservation activity otherwise they wouldn't be doing it in the first place yes exactly and um often they've been managing that site all on their own and doing a really good job for a long time before they take that final legal step to um you know lock it in with the qe2 national trust so to speak um and i think that's partly just to do with um you know, they trust themselves, they know their own intentions, they they have a particular kind regard for that site and its values, but they just want to ensure that going forward, whoever owns it in the future will have, um, you know, some constraints or will we'll have to look after it in a similar way. Let's take the first of your music choices. Let's have Joni Mitchell, All I Want. Why this one? Uh, 
I've been a long time fan of Joni Mitchell and um this is one of my favorite albums that it comes off and um yeah I don't know I like I like it it's not your typical romance song it's about maintaining your independence and learning to rub along with someone else and it's just a beautiful tune and you know like all of her stuff tells a good story Jesse, when you're helping the farmers put the the land into a, a trust, but also put it into a state that it's, um, I suppose, worth protecting, 
is that a sort of a do you do a, an ecological analysis and, and work out what's there we do yep so there's a whole set of criteria we need to run through first to check that it's kind of quote unquote worthy of protection which um it's a little unfortunate we have to do that but that's really funding constraints we have to put our priority to the most highly threatened or most valuable ecologically most valuable sites um we do have a small sort of uh, proportion that I said before we do as cultural sites or scenic or um, archaeological sites, but probably 90% of what we do is for biodiversity protection um, on private land. So, yeah, what's interesting about that to me is that while we have huge areas under public conservation land in New Zealand, they're not representative of all the ecosystem types we have in the country, and particularly the lowlands and the coastal environments are often left out. Um, and that's really just because humans live in those environments and we've modified them significantly and most of those ecosystems do fall on private land. So, um, yeah, my role is to help kind of assess the values of the site and work with the landowner to uh, clarify or kind of um, uh, identify those and then uh, work, work out what helpful management um, actions might be needed for that ecosystem type. You said it's... Um looking at areas that are, are not very well represented. The lowland forest is, the eastern lowland forest is not very well represented, but is the much of that still unprotected? Surprisingly, there is actually, and I'm, I have the pleasure of working in a region where that is the case. There's um, large areas of um, naturally occurring uh, ecosystems in Southland on private land that are not formally protected. Um, they do have some protection under the district plan, but it's not often clear to the landowner sort of what, what the rules around that um, might be. So, yeah, a QE2 covenant gives some real clarity and gives that certainty to the original person who puts the covenant protection on that there will be, you know, active involvement and, and um, oversight, I guess, um, my beady eyes, as I said before, um, on that site to, to ensure that the thing they love and they, they have protected, the steps they've taken will, will be um, uh, upheld. And the other thing that's not very well represented, of course, is swamps, because there's, over the last couple of hundred years, there's been a very heavy drive to to drain and improve that land, but it's meant we've lost all the swamps. Do, do people see that the value in that now? Uh, some are definitely, yep. Um, and you're right; we have lost an inordinate amount of wetlands in in, in the country, and Southland has been losing them at, at a, a fair pace. Um, we have quite a lot, so we've. We've lost quite a lot, but we still have quite a lot left. I think on average we've lost 30 hectares per annum for the last 30 years in my region, um, which is pretty unfortunate. Um, and, yeah, swamps, fens, bogs, mires, peak domes, um, there's a whole range um, of wetland types out there. So they're not all just open water duck pond type wetlands there's many kinds and yes I think awareness is growing um, but in fairness to the general person they are a little bit cryptic their beauty is a bit hidden or a bit hard to um, initially understand a lot of the birds and animals that live in them are quite secretive um, all the plants look like sort of brown scruffy mush to the casual observer so it, it is a bit of a secret world that not everyone's tuned into. I spent a summer in the just on just off the Antarctic Circle in northern Canada in a fen. And I mm -hmm. agree entirely. It was cryptic. <laughs> it, that's, that's a good description. But it was also it also had ice underneath it, so you don't have to deal with that. That would have made it a little easier to walk around, I assume. 
No, because it was it, no. As you walked out into it, it kind of the whole the whole surface sort of slumped down. Um, oh. It was it was too wet to walk on and too dry for a boat, which kind of That's meant it was a sort of a slither. Yep, I'm familiar with that move. Um, sometimes you do have to kind of flatten yourself out <laughs> like a frog so you don't sink too much. Um, I feel like maybe work should issue issue me with one of these cloud hopper devices, which is like a little personalized hot air balloon. So I could just skim above the wetland, do all my botanical stuff and not get sucked in. But um, yeah, I don't know. Jetpack strapped to your back, maybe not that safe. There was supposed to be two of us doing that field work and the other person had to go home for a family issue, which left me there on my own. And we were doing things like, you know, the distance to the nearest tree and it was just impossible it was it was the it was the nastiest piece of field work ever. I can sympathise. I've done quite a bit of work in the Awarua Waituna wetland down this way, and we um we have a nickname for the wire rush that you walk across. We call it the Fire Master Two Thousand because you feel like you're just constantly walking uphill, even though you're not yes. on the spongy stuff, and you fall over about every ten steps. And yeah, it's not glamorous. We were working with some people, some people from the local tribe. Um, they they worked out that um, it was it was a good idea to involve the community as of course it is in the in the work that we were doing and we left a chainsaw behind um, and we left it about two hours we'd been walking for about two hours through this mud to get back to the camp and we realised we'd left the chainsaw behind and they wouldn't go back and get it they said it'll still be there next year it was all about they had a totally different idea it was all about the conservation of energy. That makes a lot of sense. So, what's the what what's what are the most like special bits that you get to work in? Oh, everyone asks me that. What are your favourites? It's 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 a little bit hard. It's like asking a teacher who's your favourite child. You're not really supposed to answer that question. <laughs> um, I think they're all my favourites to an extent. Some of them, it's um, it might just be another standard bit of forest that's not too different from the other one. But the landowner is really cool, and they just love it to bits. It's their special place. They're looking after it with every fibre of their being, and. I just turn up and give them a good thumbs up and say, keep up the good work, you're amazing, and just give them the recognition. Um, and that's always a real buzz for me to meet people who are just getting stuck in and who love it. Um, some of them, they're special to me because it might be the first time I've seen a particular plant or a particular animal. Um, this summer, for the first time in my life, I got to see a peripatus, a velvet worm. That was really cool. So that little patch of forest will always be special in my head because of that experience. Um I'm a total plant geek, I will confess. So, yeah, anything that's got threatened or interesting plants usually gets my attention pretty quickly. How do you convince people? I suppose they're already convinced. But in the, it's taken hundreds of years to get to the state we're in now, and we can't turn it around instantly. Do, do people think that it's just a matter of putting a fence around it and saying, yeah, that's protected and bingo, it's all going to be fantastic. There is a little little bit of that, yeah. So like you said, I'm not convincing anyone to take those initial steps to do the protection. They come to me. So I'm working with a sort of a biased sample of the population, <laughs> I guess, a sub-sample. Sub um, however, um, yeah, as we have conversations about what, what is special about that ecosystem, um, what drives it, what are its processes, what are its kind of ecological 
values and what the landowner wants to see for it you know they might um, wish for example to see a particular population of special plant thrive in there that's special to that site or or they may just wish to see it healthy and in, in a general sense and not be too clear on exactly what that looks like um, but as we undergo that conversation in that process um, we look a bit deeper at what that system needs and so sometimes people do go on a bit of a journey a learning curve and they realize that simply fencing out the livestock might not be enough and that um, active management for example getting stuck into a particularly tricky weed that's threatening to take over the whole site um, may be really mission critical um, that's that's getting easier and easier but I think yeah in the past there certainly has this sort of been this attitude been that you just fence and walk away and um, the big the big work was just simply refraining from clearing it in the first place and once you've done that you're a legend but um, more and more we're getting people who realize that's just phase one and phase two is to actively look after it, especially with predator control for example um, we all know what happens at night when the rats come out to play those guys don't take a break and you must have to do quite some education process as understanding changes and i'm thinking of the decision whether or not to clear gorse yes, do, absolutely. Do, how do you work so, with people on those sorts of questions um well i just sort of play it by ear to be honest it really really depends on the person I'm talking to um I mean that's the beauty of my role it's sort of kanohi ki te kanohi it's right there in front of them we're having a chat we're out there on the farm and um I just sort of work with whatever um they're doing and interested in at the moment so if they're really some people I meet are busy as hell and they don't have time for everything so if I can emphasize that the gorse is you know as long as it's kept off the fence it's no threat to the forest and you can just let that system run then they're probably quite relieved because it's one less thing on their list. Um, if they're a neat freak and they just cannot abide by those yellow flowers, um, that's always a little harder. And I, I can sympathise. Someone who's been fighting gorse for 40 years is going to find it harder to walk past gorse inside a fence. Um, but then again, gorse, of course, can be problematic depending on the ecosystem. So if it was a, a, a wetland where everything's only about a metre high and the gorse is making inroads into the drier parts of it, then it is a threat and you know intervention is necessary but a forest gorse doesn't represent a threat to a forest and to what extent are you helping people integrate the the management of the whole farm and i'm thinking about the the pest management but also things that might have negative impacts things like the you're going to get wilding pines if you've got a um if you've got a stand of pines how do you deal with those sorts of tricky ones they can be a bit tricky. I I um I don't really have a right to tell people what to do on the rest of their land, to be honest. So it's just it's a gentle conversation. Um, but there are some constraints in a covenant deed, for example, that would um, even though the activity might be happening outside the covenant, would impact the covenant and would be you know a bit of a no no. Uh, the classic one would be irrigation. If you were irrigating right next to a natural dry land system and some of that irrigation spray was drifting in and you were accidentally irrigating the wet, uh, the dry land as well, uh, that wouldn't be so great. Um, so, or you, you know, you've got a beautiful wetland and then you come along and cut some big ditches around it and drain it on the outside. So that, you know, again, not great. Um, but yeah, it's, it's really just a matter of making friends with the people I work with and working alongside them. Um, I just jokingly tell them I'm only going to see you once every sort of 700 days or so. So each, each property I visit roughly every two years. 
So they have to be aware and on board and, and keen for their own sake because it's just not efficient for me to be there every five minutes breathing down their neck and looking over their shoulder. Bubble Sprite of the Forest of Orokanui, Dunedin's favourite goddess, Tahu Mackenzie. Kia ora koutou, I'm here kia koutou, koutou I hope you're all having the best day of beautiful superstars and your beloved universes. I really hope wherever you are, whatever's happening around you, this journey that we're all on together is proving to be very rewarding, very sustaining and illuminating for you more and more each day. Who you are, the triumph of nature's perfect, unique and here making them better. Thank you. As you know, we've been through such a challenging time together and I feel that it has affected us all in different ways and it's important to acknowledge that over the last more than a year we've had to be on high alert in terms of our nervous system and I think this has taken a toll on us all. It's important that we do everything we can to be compassionate to ourselves and each other, be kind to ourselves and each other, understand that we are still in a challenging situation and as much as we can do things to soothe and reconfigure our parasympathetic nervous system moving from a state of fight or flight to a state of rest and digest and i know for me and beautiful leslie wife of sam that bar base is a great balm to us and we're starting a winter challenge today and we're trying to do five classes a week, so I'm very excited about that. And I think I'm very motivated by stickers, and we will have a sticker chart. So it's all on starting today, which is very exciting. So I really hope for you, you're finding ways to care for yourself and also motivate yourself to care for yourself. And I know as a species, it's very helpful to have structures in place that support us to do things that help us. And it's very important to have reward systems in place that motivate us to to care for ourselves and each other so whether it's a gold star or a gold circle sticker this really helps me but i hope for you you have found motivational tools that are easily accessible and of course the greatest motivational tools as we know are within us our beautiful hearts able to feel so much in response to our interactions with those around us and our inner processing, our inner inner knowing and our absolutely phenomenal consciousness able to experience and understand and feel so much and see things anew each moment. What a gift. And of course we can really ramp things up at this time of year when it is cold and raining and quite dark that sense of emergence into the world each day from our cosy home sanctuaries. We can feel a sense of gratitude for the warmth and the, the preparedness with which we can live our lives. I know I do, and particularly in my work at my heart's home, Otokunua Eco Sanctuary, where I'm outside in the rain all day at the moment, it's lovely to come home, be warm and cosy. So I really hope for you you have a, a wonderful home sanctuary that is warm and cosy for you at the moment or that wherever you are you can enjoy having nourishing interactions in the outside world 
and enjoy participating in consensus reality but then return to your own space and have a sense of your own reality and in the same way enjoy venturing forth in the external world but know there's that sanctuary within always and there's your, your inner self, your inner knowing there always to support you. So I really hope for you, whatever you're beginning today goes really well and I'll look forward to talking to you again soon. Thank you, Kakitu. You're listening to Blowing Bubbles and we're talking with Jesse Bythal. Jesse, um, you said just before something that um, I found curious. Uh, I uh, have been looking at unconditional positive regard, which is this, um, it's a, a model of engagement with people, helping them to see always, um, helping you to see the best in others. And you said about having kind regard for the whenua, which is something that I'd never heard anybody talk about land and our natural environment like that before. Can you expand a little bit on that? That was really amazing, actually. Oh, crikey, I do just blather on sometimes. I don't know what I've said. Um, well, I mean, it's very easy for me to sort of turn up and engage with the landowner and think of that as my primary relationship because I'm a human and they're a human and we speak the same language. But um, really, I've been charged with a bit of a mission, not to sound too holy than thou, but been charged with a mission by the original landowner who's asked me to keep an eye out and look out for this piece of land and the values that are there. So, yeah, I'm really working for the covenant and working with the landowner. Um, yeah, so my job is to help explain and and um, encourage, explain the values, encourage action. Um, something Sam picked up on before is, you know, how do I, uh, do I influence the landowner in their decision-making on the rest of their farm and things that might threaten or um, pose a risk to the protected area? I don't directly, but I definitely have a challenge when it comes to the new landowner who may come along and not be aware of why that covenant is there and what makes it special and sometimes they're totally on board and it's wonderful sometimes they need a little bit of convincing um and so i guess yeah that's where i have to sort of gently um and respectfully stand up for the land and explain to them what they've signed up for and what it means so that's always an interesting process which i actually quite enjoy i've seen quite a bit of that in social media just lately um there's a it seems to be like this these cycles of movements and there's a movement at the moment that seems to be opposed to um i can't remember what the exact term they used was but basically other people controlling how you use your land and uh, so I, is that something that you encounter like you know is, is this a cyclical thing it seems to me a cyclical thing as an observer sorry no, go ahead. Um, I was thinking you might be referring to the Significant Natural Areas Program, which are ecological surveys across private land, um, yes. which are not new, actually. They've been around for several decades, but most regional councils have been a bit slow to implement them, and they've only just started rolling it out. And there has been a, pun intended, a groundswell response against that. Um, I think a lot of that's coming from fear and poor understanding of the matter. Um, and with respect to the folks who are worried about that, I would encourage them to become more informed before they get too stressed out. Um, yeah, especially I think if they're, um, for example, often I meet people who are both concerned about that, this, this idea that the outsiders or the regulators or central government or so forth will come in and tell them how to run their land. Um, but then they're also equally worried about 
pine trees and plantation forestry taking over farmland and um, interestingly if you wanted to prevent that getting a significant natural area survey on your land would be one of the one of the good ways to do that it's quite hard to plant um, a pine tree forest on top of a tussock grassland if it's been identified as a significant natural area but if you are doing extensive pastoral grazing on that tussock grassland that activity can continue generally so I think, um, yeah, it's a little frustrating. I think social media is particularly good at um, polarizing and simplifying the debate, black and white and absolutism. Uh, but yeah, I would encourage people to take a breath and get more information. Here in the Eastern Bay of Plenty, we've, um, I know a few different landowners who are restoring their wetlands and restoring their native fish habitat uh, is that something that you see will happen eventually in the area that you're in? I know at the moment it's you're still in a phase of people wanting to dry out their swamps. Do you see that that change back? Is it starting to? Is it starting down there yet? I definitely do. I am seeing some really beautiful created wetlands in my region. Uh, one of the organisations that I think does a particularly excellent job of this is the YO Trust in Western Southland, um, and it's mostly about connectivity and fish passage and um, catchment scale work. Um, very, very excellent uh, wetland enhancements and restoration. Um, but yeah, going back to your point, um, I don't think it's an either or. I mean, I'm probably a bit greedy, but it's a and both argument for me. Um, we need to halt the existing rate of loss and also try and reinstate some of our wetlands. And the more we learn and the more we comprehend the value that these things offer us, they're not just nice places to look at or nice things for the birds and frogs and so forth to live in. They actually pr provide us with ecosystem services um, and not just farms, but the whole landscape. So, yeah, they slow down water, they cycle nutrients, they collect sediment, they store a heck of a lot of carbon. Um, and so, as I said before, there's many types of ecosystems and many types of wetlands and um, clearing one type of wetland and then building a duck pond as some sort of replacement doesn't really cut it in my in my books but um, the more people learn and the more sort of complex they realize the systems are hopefully the um the more nuanced their approach will become let's take the second of your music choices let's have boards of canada roy g biv why this one Oh, I just love Boards of Canada. I'm just a total freak for their stuff. And um, this is probably one of their more upbeat tunes. Most of the rest of their songs are very melancholy and dreamy. Um, but yeah, I, this one always gets my, my toes tapping.
Jesse, we've seen lots of changes in society over the last year, the year of the pandemic. What do you think is going to stick? And perhaps more importantly, what do you hope will stick? Mm, lots of things. I think um, going back to a comment I made earlier about my phone ringing off the hook and more and more people wanting to do protection, I think slowing down and noticing nature has been a big part of lockdown experience for many people, whether they're rural or, or urban. And um, feeling a little mortal, feeling a little humbled in the face of larger things. Um, and I, I know, you know, that can be a bit scary as well. So I'm not encouraging it to happen all the time to that degree. But I would really like to see more people uh, take that learning or take that experience and, and, and carry it forward into the rest of their lives. What lessons do you think we can take from the pandemic and the pandemic response for the bigger sorts of questions that we, the challenges that we face, things like climate change or biodiversity collapse or social injustice? Hmm. Um, lucky I have a philosopher as a, as a partner, so I can, uh, <laughs> I'm no stranger to having conversations about these big, deep things. Actually, I also like having philosophical chats with many of my farmers too. They're deep thinkers as well. And um, I would answer the simple thing is that people were doing a really good job in New Zealand, at least in many other countries, of listening to scientists, listening to people who in no small way do know a thing or two about systems, complex systems. And that, I found that really encouraging. I, I don't want to put scientists on a pedestal and say they know all the answers, but what they're really good at doing is thinking critically and reviewing their understanding of things as new knowledge comes forth. So um, that's not an exclusive activity of scientists. Many general people are very good at that too. But um, yeah, not panicking, taking a deep breath, looking at the facts and reviewing as more information comes in. Um, and I guess the other thing, well, people were quite good at looking after each other. And I know, you know, be kind. Some people sort of like to criticise that. But I think um, in general, New Zealanders really had a bit of a rethink about what was important to them and what what values they wanted to focus on and looking out for one another and looking after their friends and neighbours and their family became a really big part of the lockdown response here in New Zealand. And um, I took a lot of heart from that. It was just great. People are describing the what happened after the, the pandemic. And of course, New Zealand has got to this point ahead of the rest of the world, whether or not it's a a recovery or a regeneration or a reset or something. They all seem to start with R. What do you see as that that opportunity? Oh, it's manifold. I've been looking at this with great interest. Um, things like the tourism reset, um, things like looking at how we want our economy to run, how we rely on very extended supply chains, um, how we focus you know it's very easy to do this when you become very good at one thing you focus and excel at that one thing but um i like to think a little bit about how farmers used to be back in the day they weren't all super excellent at one thing they were jacks of all trades they could do a lot of things and um generally i think as an economy or as a society it's useful to spread your spread your efforts out there and be um a little bit more diversified and like you know just to be cheesy about it here, ecosystems that are diverse are far, far more resilient than monocultures or modified ecosystems that are dominated by a few things. So, yeah, diversity equals resilience in my books. I have some questions to end the show with, and 
not that much time, so we shall have to be quickish. What is the biggest success you've had in the last couple of years? Hmm. Um, I don't know if I want to say any one particular thing, but um, I can tell you something that's happened recently in my life that's made me very happy. Um, and I guess it's a form of success. Um, my partner and I have been searching high and low for a piece of land of our own, and we finally found it. And um, yeah, it's a dream come true. We've bought a bit of rainforest in the Catlins. Uh, nowhere to live down there yet, but that's the dream. And um, we're really looking forward to, I don't know, dedicating the next 30 years of our lives to looking after it. That is so cool. We're writing a book of these conversations. It's called Tomorrow's Heroes. It's our team of people doing good work. So you are in that team. What is the superpower that's got you into the mansion? <laughs> Crikey. Um, I think probably just the fact that I'm not embarrassed to be enthusiastic about things. Um, yeah, I'm quite happy to let that shine out. That's a good one. Do you consider yourself to be an activist? Hmm. I have friends who are activists and I respect them greatly. Um, I think I'm an undercover activist. I have definitely joined the revolution, but I'm I'm working a little bit more quietly and gently with people. So I sort of sneak up on them sometimes or stand next to them rather than coming head on. There's definitely room for that too. Definitely elevates the debate. What motivates you? What gets you out of bed in the morning? Oh, I just have so many things to do. Um, I'm never bored and I've got way too many projects on the go at any given time. So, um, yeah, what gets me out of bed? Sometimes I stay in bed. It's blooming cold down here in the winter. So sometimes I'm guilty <laughs> of checking my emails from under my comfortable duvet. <laughs> but, um, yeah, I think just the fact that it's a great time to be alive. There's many interesting things on the go. Um, I, I have a job I love. I have people I work with that I really enjoy. And, um, yeah. It's never a dull moment, so there's too much to do to stay in bed. And what's the biggest challenge you're looking forward to in the next year or so? Keeping up with this crazy high demand of landowners who want to do more protection. Well, that's good news. <laughs> yeah, it's a very good problem to have. And lastly, do you have any advice for our listeners? Hmm. Um... Well, I guess one of my challenges in my job is that I do meet people who don't really understand what I'm banging on about and we don't always see eye to eye. And so I have an enduring relationship with that person. I will be working with them for as long as they own that piece of land and that could be decades. And I love my job, so it could literally be decades. So um, for me, I think my advice is, is sometimes if you can find that point of commonality again this sounds super cheesy but it's worked for me so I'll pass it on if you can find that point of commonality with the person that you've just met whether you're both into quilting or you're both into training dogs or you're both into hunting or whatever it is find that point of commonality and then work forward from there and um, usually you can find a way to talk to each other thank you very much for that Moira Jesse thank you for uh, being a champion for the whenua and for uh, being a champion for education and, um, and for everything that you're doing to make the world a better place. We appreciate you. Thanks for coming on the show today. Ngā mm, Thanks. Thank you very much for joining us. We're going out to 
Big Yellow Taxi. I love that one too. <laughs> their safe spaces around the world brought to you by the sustainable lens team which is brought to you by otago polytechnic we're broadcast on otago access radio every monday wednesday and friday afternoons at three and streamed and podcast on oar.org.nz you can find us on facebook and subscribe wherever you get your podcasts we had a contribution today from tahu mckenzie i'm samuel man in soyuz bay dunedin with mawira karatai in Fakatani and in wairio in western southland jesse bival that was blowing bubbles we hope you enjoyed the show This podcast was produced by ORFM Dunedin with support from New Zealand on the air.